Welcome to the Vocational Education Podcast. Here's your host, Dr. Dan. Hi, everyone, and welcome to 2020. The vet year has begun. People back at TAFE, back at their RTOs, all working hard towards a qualification for this year. If you're working in an RTO, congratulations, welcome back to work. It's been an exciting little break period, I'm sure, for a lot of people. A lot of people take this downtime to get away. A lot of us spend this time working on our materials for the following year. So whatever you got up to, I hope you had a very pleasant break. And uh, we're back into it this year with a couple of changes, as you probably heard. Firstly, the intro music that we're using now has been written very proudly by my son, Jordan Hill. I hope you enjoyed the music intro. The other interesting thing for today's podcast is that we've managed to talk with the amazing Claire Field today. Claire is an industry stalwart. She has been around for many a decade in this industry and worked tirelessly to improve the industry from within and from without. In her current role as a consultant, she does this on a daily basis with organizations at the strategic level. But also as a former CEO of ACPET, the Australian Council for Private Education Training, she also made a large impact in the industry or on the industry. So before we get on to that particular interview and the insights within, I thought I'd also talk briefly about the TAE qualifications. Well, if you do know me, you know that it's been my speciality for some time now. And as a co-author of the vocational education and training text, it's a passion more than just an interest. Now, there is rumor, of course, that uh, things are going to change soon. And, uh, you know, that's always a rumor in this industry. 2020 was denoted or designated as the review year for the TAE. So we'll keep you up to date as we go forward and as we hear things within the sector and through the grapevine, so to speak, from PwC and ASQA themselves. We'll let you know of any of the changes that are coming up to that particular qualification. Of course, it is a very important one in our sector because all trainers are required under the uh, standards to have a Cert for in training assessment or higher qualification in adult training. If you have any comments about that, the higher qualification part especially, feel free to send me an email. You can email me at dan at spectraining.edu.au and I'm always up for a good discussion about all things TAE and all things VET in general. So without any further ado, I'll hand you over to our interview. Have a great day. Claire Field, welcome to the Vocational Education Podcast. Thank you very much. Claire, to start things off, firstly, welcome to 2020. And in that vein, what hope or hopes are you holding out for the vocational sector in the coming decade? Goodness, that's a big question. And I'm going to probably disappoint you and your listeners (laughs) by saying that I'm not that optimistic. I fear we're in a, a period at the moment where it's hard to have a great deal of, of optimism and hope and I really think it's going to require the sector to galvanise, to chart its own way forward. Uh, I think there are threats where we're clearly not well understood by the Commonwealth Government and some state governments. Mm. Um, we're not valued as much as the sector was, and I've worked in it for quite a long time, by parts of the the business community. And we face a, a real threat. Parts of the sector, depending on what you teach, um, faces real threats from uh, non-accredited, particularly ed tech providers. Mm. So I think it's 
um, it's a challenging path ahead and that's we've seen that in terms of numbers of providers it, the amount of government funding having been reduced for the sector and at this point in time I think the Joyce Review um, seem to be one of the few people in the sector that actually thinks it's a really good blueprint but I suspect it probably won't end up being implemented uh, because of powers that be invested interests. So, sorry to start 2020 with not much uh, enthusiasm, but that's that's where I start. Well, what are some of the key aspects of the Joyce Review that you would love to see implemented? For someone who was given uh, no terms of reference to look at funding, he makes good recommendations about funding okay. uh, in, a, in as far as he goes. So he talks about the fact that the sector needs to, that is Australia needs the sector to move to uh, it, treat uh, higher education and vet equally in terms of government funding and contributions, and I think that's critical. Um he talks about, and there's been uh, just before Christmas, we saw the government start to move on, not the not the equal funding uh, part, uh, but uh, free places for anyone anywhere who needs language literacy, numeracy, or digital skills training. Uh, let's just not put people through a ringer if they need help with basic skills. Let's give them. Mm. Um, I do think there's a need to change the current skills service organisation model. I have some understanding of how things have operated in New Zealand for a number of years and his recommendations are obviously similar. And yes, I understand New Zealand are also making changes, but by and large, their industry advisory arrangements and preferred providers, connecting industry more closely with strong providers, public and private. Uh, I think that's to be um, applauded. The the focus on more Indigenous ownership, Indigenous people, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people being taught in their own languages. You know, we're a long way behind other countries in terms of of that of that as a, a means to progress. So I think there's, you know, and I guess you know, we're all preoccupied by regulation. He doesn't look to start from scratch. He goes back to uh, the Braithwaite review, looks at other recommendations that have been made about regulatory reform. And again, we're starting to see the government legislate some of those, not through the parliament yet, but in the mix. Uh, and I think those changes uh, will also strengthen the sector. Uh, the part that's controversial to some and where I think it risks falling down is the powers of the National Skills Commission. Mm. So at its simplest, it would be another forecasting body. Where are the jobs changing? What skills do we need? Um, a bit like the old Skills Australia model. At its, at its biggest and where he envisages it should be, um, it becomes, and some people won't have even heard this, that's how young they are, uh, it becomes more like an, an ANTA 2.0 where the Commonwealth and the state collectively work through a national agency to agree on national funding priorities and more national, nationally comparable um, funding for courses. So there's more certainty and stability for providers um, and that in turn brings greater confidence to 
uh, prospective learners, their parents, their employers, um, and the general community. You mentioned in there one of the first things that came up was uh, language literacy, numeracy, and basic foundation skills. Do you think it's the vocational sector's place in society to upskill people in those areas or, or, or skill people in those areas, or is it more a um, higher education or, or a secondary education role? Uh, look, I think schools clearly have the role for those that, you know, are enrolled with them. Um, but if that hasn't worked or, and or we have um, migrants or others who, who missed out at, at school um, and don't hold those skills, and particularly as we age, there's a growing group of people without basic digital skills, I can't see that the universities are well-placed to offer that. I mean, mm. they're offering higher AQF level education. Uh, it is a tension and it's always been a tension in the VET system between the lower level courses, very introductory, very basic that it offers and the very high skilled, highly technical uh, levels and courses that it offers. And it is unfortunate that I think sometimes uh, while it's important that those skills are provided, um, we haven't found a way to celebrate the very important high-level skills that are taught in VET and uh, and we're going to need to be able to, to balance uh, both uh, because both are crucially important. Can I just share an anecdote then in regards to not just the place of um, language literacy and numeracy uh, development within VET, but also the reality of it for a lot of private and public um, providers. When, let's say, a, a student turns up and they do a pre-screening of some form, be it in-depth or just a shallow one through an enrolment process, and um, the provider's accepting numerous enrolments on a daily or weekly basis, and this person gets through, you know, they're not going to be turned away, they're paying their money, they're turning up, and they get into the training. Now, we're trying to skill our vocational educators to at least be aware of LLN issues and how to deal with them. That's a part of the, the core competencies of their um, Cert 4. What we have seen is that at the point where the person is now in a classroom, the trainer will do virtually everything they can to make sure that person gets through, be it um, above board or, or not, uh, dare I say it. And the result of that, and I'll put this as a as a proposal rather than a question, but the result of that potentially is that we're getting a lot of people through the vet sector who are passing competencies, so saying that they can do a particular role, when really they may have only, well, barely passed, if at all. Um, now, now that isn't just an LLN issue; that that's a that's a competency issue in total. But I'm seeing it from an LLN perspective on a on a very regular basis through the organisations that I've dealt with and or, or had um, some sort of passing interest in. If that's the case, how, from a regulator's point of view or from uh, an industry body's point of view, can we step in to try and arrest that beyond what we're already trying to do within um, within VET? Well, that's quite a lengthy question and proposition. I mean, I think that there's a few things in what you've said. Uh, firstly, we need to tackle uh, the the skills gaps that people might have in a particular area or across a number of different um, f foundational skills for want of a grab bag of terms. So mm. we don't want people enrolling in courses unless they're 
academically able to engage in the learning. And yes, we do need to accept that at times there'll be gaps which teachers will need to supplement. Uh, so I think, the, I mean, I think this is where Joyce is going. Let's try and get everybody, let's try and lift the standards of language, literacy, numeracy and digital skills across the country. And that's a slightly separate issue than the, the problem that, that you're identifying. And I, I think we're... You know, we see it in, in vet and higher education where there can be pressures on teachers uh, to pass students. Uh, some of that's motivated by kindness uh, where, you know, teachers want to go out of their way to help support students and perhaps uh, provide too much support to them. Um, at times, again, anecdotally, that's uh, because of external pressures and we see that sometimes in international education. Um, mm. So what's to be done about it? Well, I think... Um, unfortunately, what we have at the moment is, and various people may not like me saying this, uh, and it's taken me a long time to, to come to this view, we have a focus on, from a regulatory perspective on inputs. And we have, every time there's a, a, a regulatory failure in the system and problems emerge, we uh, put more attention on inputs and adding more of them, trying to do that and use that to, to as a proxy for um, ensuring that there'll be a quality educational experience and people will uh, exit with the competencies or uh, full qualification that, you know, the testimony attests to. Uh, and I think the reality is that that system is broken and more independent involvement in assessment, and again, this is an area that Joyce goes into, mm. um, is probably um, overdue. That if we were to have, uh, whichever way you want to structure it, if we were to have more independence in the uh, decisions around, in assessment decisions, then teachers would be free to teach. And as long as we had the integrity in the assessment system, it would be up to providers and educators for how they educated and what they did. And as long as people could pass a very good and you know proper and thorough um, assessment, it, it changes the whole dynamic. And I think in trying to do the right thing and everybody in the sector focusing on trying to fix problems – We've shifted away from a focus on teaching and education uh, to a very narrow and prescriptive focus on assessment. Uh, and my background includes um, educational assessment. And, you know, as a, even as someone who's, you know, studied it at higher levels and, and thinks it's important, I think we've gone too far and we need to rebalance. And we can't do that while we pin everything on uh, on an inputs focus system without the integrity of some checks and more checks and balances around our, our assessment processes. So something I think you touched on without touching on then is the, the value proposition to organisations who are undertaking the training. Now, the, whether it's higher ed or, or secondary, there is a mandated level of hours. People pay for their uh, semesters, they pay for their school years up front or, or as they go, but it's paid for and the time is allocated. The one thing in the vet sector that is very different to those two sectors is time. The experience I've had, depending on the qualifications, now this doesn't apply so much to traineeships and apprenticeships, but um, outside of those qualifications, there is a, a tendency for uh, potential students to say, look, I want this done as quickly as I can, as cheap as I can. I just need this ticket to get this job. I need this qualification to be accepted for this role. 
And sadly, we've seen that turn, things like the um, responsible service of alcohol through to barista courses all the way now, even I mean, the Cert for and training assessments are a culprit as well. So many qualifications have been squished into at the shortest amount of time feasibly possible, probably even not feasibly possible, for a price that you wonder how providers can deliver it. Now, that's unique to the vet sector. The other two sectors do not have that pressure to pump out someone because there's not someone waiting at the other end to employ them necessarily. I find this a, a real hard conundrum, if, if not a dilemma, because I don't, that toss up between time and, and quality and cost from a provider's point of view, I find to, to be very, very hard to convince potential students when they can go elsewhere, pay half the price, do it in half the time. Is that a concern of yours? Oh, well, I think it's, again, you know, look, I just sound like I'm a cheerleader for Stephen Joyce. <laughs> um, it's something that Joyce tackles. And again, in the sector, this idea, you know, and there are some industry peak bodies who think it's a bad idea to be really clear about hours. And yet, all of our vet qualifications are pegged to an AQS level, which has a notional volume of learning attached to it. And so Joyce says, rather than um, at the moment, we attach, you know, years, and then we necessarily convert to hours. um, But we attach them currently to an average learner, And I think that's where we get into the debate. Well, what is average? And then you've got, let's face it, some cheap and nasty providers whose idea of average is incredibly narrow, short piece of time. uh, And everyone else is, you know, who's trying to do the right thing um, and have educationally sound programs. They're then compromised because of those cheap and nasty providers. Joyce says instead that, and I agree with him, that we should focus on the average hours required for a novice learner. Now, that's not someone who's new to learning, but for me to learn plumbing or carpentry uh, or, you know, a range of different skills, um, I'm coming at it barely able to pick up a hammer and I'm not, you know, embarrassed to say that. So I would, you know, we we don't have an issue with other countries don't have an issue with a competency-based system which has some integrity and framework to it around a notional number of hours that that learners need to, to learn that content. And obviously, if I've worked as a bricky tradies labourer for a few years and then I go to do, you know, a, a Cert 3 in construction, well, I don't come to it as a novice. I come with a certain amount of knowledge and expertise. And if there's a group who come with that knowledge, well, of course, you would be entirely justified in running a, a shorter program, uh, which, you know, would go at a faster pace than someone like me would be able to, to keep up with. So I think educationally, there's no issue with um, having a, a proper discussion around the hours required to teach new learners, um, even in a competency-based uh, program. Um, and it, until we really land that and have that specified, we are going to have the pressures from those who come up with creative explanations to the regulator uh, as to why they think they can do it quicker. This is one thing I really like about the vet sector is that it is competency-based. And uh, I remember when I was uh, a teenager trying to get a pilot's license and the uh, mandatory hours with an instructor before you're allowed to be 
out on your own as a solo pilot. And then that changed over the years saying, okay, actually, it's, it's, as soon as you become competent, as soon as they say, actually, you know, you know how to control this uh, vehicle, you can go up in it. Now, that wouldn't necessarily happen in the other sectors. In fact, it's very hard to. So RPL and recognition of current competency are two absolute gold standards for our sector. It allows those people, as you said, if they have got some carpentry background to go into a builder's license course and, and get some uh, advanced standing. Try to do that in universities and depending on the university, it can be an incredibly difficult proposition. So I think we've got that worked out. So ours, especially when it comes to vetting competent or not yet competent people, I think we're relatively good at. But the interesting thing is the competition driving price that, that is the other side of that coin because quality, time and cost time sure if we could somehow convince students that they should take a year to do a cert for instead of six months and if we can also convince them that that's going to benefit them because the quality of the education they're going to get is going to be superior and also by the way it's going to cost you more because the resources required by the rto are going to be double that's the proposition we're trying to float and this is well no i i think that's not quite sorry we're slightly talking at cross purposes that's okay. so joyce is saying there will be a set number of hours yeah. right and that's it and that's what everyone will teach the cert for right x number of hours unless the group of students that they're teaching to so so yes you're right rpl rcc etc advanced standing but that wasn't quite my example so my example was if i'm a we'll stick with carpentry if i'm teaching you know the builder's licensing course and my group that i'm teaching all have some you know laboring background I can design a course that runs for a shorter number of hours. Hmm. But if I'm teaching brand newbies wet behind the ears or even, you know, older people wet behind the ears like myself who want to go and get my builder's licence, I'm starting from scratch. Therefore, there is no uh, no rationale that the regulator can accept for why we need to accelerate it into a shorter period. So, so you take away the decision for how hmm. long the course will be and you then have an, an unless there is a reason based on the cohort that you're teaching and you might not give them any um, RPL you may just be able to teach them things more quickly because they come with a lot of underpinning knowledge mm. not de demonstrable against a particular unit but then their overall knowledge means a, a faster pace is appropriate yep. and so if you take that so then so then you come to a pricing decision which is around a standard amount of time to teach the course. And then students can choose. If if we're all teaching a course and it runs for a full year, uh, unless we've got a special cohort, well, then if the, if the student wants to choose the cheap and nasty one um, and the regulator thinks the cheap and nasty one, albeit with, you know, less equipment and, you know, not such good blah, 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 blah. Um, if the regulator's happy with the standard of it and the student wants the cheap one versus, you know, the, the better quality product and the, you know, more qualified teachers or whatever it is, better equipment, well, then that, that becomes a different choice on pricing. Yeah, it's more a commercial decision at yeah. that point in time yeah uh, no yeah, i think we were on the same level or the same page because exactly what you said there i'm in line with i think that's uh, ideally if we had a level playing field in one of those areas then at least we could compete on quality and, and delivery and really the importance of the education that we're trying to uh, impart instead of 
these these commercial or, or um, otherwise decisions. It, because uh, my organisation, uh, we've seen such a, a variety of quality offered in in this qualification. It's been quite horrid, but also it, it's kind of a ticket as well, a bit like the RSA, that people need to get jobs. So a lot of them will be in a job and say, I just want this in six weeks and saying, well, you can't have it in six weeks. <laughs> and that's what, yep. you know, if we could just say, you know what, no provider is going to give it to you in six weeks, therefore it's now going to come down to cost and quality. That'd be great. I would love to see that that playing field changed just for, from a personal point of view alone. I think from an, an educational quality and educational integrity, I could not agree with you more. So, But it's one of the areas where I am a bit pessimistic that mm. Joyce's reforms will will get support. So there's they're quite contested because there's a range of views that in a pure competency based you could never specify ours for anything. I disagree with. Yep. And also there's some concern within parts of the union uh, movement, uh, which is that they have ours in a number of um, occupational awards, uh, industrial you know, agreements, and would the hours in a VET qualification be different and what would that mean? I think that second issue can be worked through and I don't think that's a problem, but obviously I'm neither a government official nor a union official, so we'll wait and see how that plays out. But yeah. I would like to see it because I agree for good providers it would make all the world a difference. There was um, some interesting talk before the last federal election about the direction of public and private funding in the vet sector without being too specific. Were you familiar with some of the the talk that was going on by the various candidates at the time? Oh, I didn't actually. I mean, there was the Labor Party was uh, proposing free TAFE, which you have in um, Victoria and in smaller pockets in in Queensland. Um, but that was sort of, I think, an, an interim measure. And then they were proposing really a very large uh, post secondary review to look at funding for both vet and uh, and higher education. Um, and you know, the the current government. Uh, had made its announcements in the budget, which were really around more um, apprenticeship places, as well as the the Joyce review, some of the Joyce review recommendations. I think we're about to see some changes. I'm hoping uh, with the VET student loan scheme, that's very underdone in terms of numbers of students enrolled, and obviously a part of that is the loan limits are far too restrictive, let alone a, a number of other issues. So in terms mm. of funding, I'd like to see that change quite quickly. But broader issues about um, greater consistency, I mean, again, look, I seem like I'm just here to talk about the Joyce Review, but it's an important document and if people aren't familiar with it, I would encourage them to, to read it because he cites, you know, the example which any RTO working across more than one state would be familiar with and he uses nursing. Now, we all agree that nursing is a skill shortage occupation and we're all going to need more of them. And yet state governments provide vastly different amounts of funding for exactly the same qualification. So those kinds of funding anomalies also need to be tackled. And it's those that I'm, again, less optimistic about. You were the CEO at ACPET for uh, just over four years. Is that correct? That is. Yeah. You would have seen that. Well, actually, before I go on, what was the biggest hurdle or the loudest complaint you may have heard from private educators during that time because that would have been across the changes from the vet fee help scheme to the vet loan scheme wasn't it 
Uh, no, they came after me. They um, came after no, my the, the trouble that I walked, walked into without realising quite how radical it would be, and it was sadly as big as the vet fee help to vet student loans uh, change, was in international education. There'd been um, fraudulent behaviour by a number of providers in Melbourne and Sydney, yeah. and the government's response was, again, well over the top, um, killed off a lot of great businesses and took a long time. It impacted well more broadly than I think they, they had intended. Mm. Um, so that was a huge uh, issue. At the time that I was at ACPET for uh, funding for domestic students, um, actually it was a time of funding being opened up. Mm. Uh, and then at the tail end of it, we saw the – so state governments were moving to contestable funding programs and the vet fee-help scheme was – uh, had been introduced. Um, it hadn't started to be rorted at that stage. Um, but what we did see was the Victorian government realising their state government funding was too loose and was open to fraud and they started to, to wind that back. So it was a period of some positives and um, and some pretty tricky things to, to have to deal with. I must admit, uh, when you... When you went into your own private consultancy and, uh, and and saw the sorts of work you were doing, I thought, I think you found your niche. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. No, I like it uh, because I, I must admit, there's not many people out there who would um, who would read through the Joyce Report and, and other such documents and and have the insight and the experience to be able to boil them down the way you do to make it oh, very Dan, readable. That's very kind. Oh Thank no, you, you very ab- much. Absolutely, and that's um, you know that's one of the attractions to following you on LinkedIn and uh, and seeing the um, the sorts of impacts that these large documents will have on us. The government thing that I was thinking about before that scared the life out of me, thinking that um, a particular party was going to get in, was the push towards more government contracts being awarded to government funded trading institutions, uh, i.e. TAFE, as opposed to private uh, institutions. And uh, and being a private owner, I, I looked around saying, is no one listening to this? Is, is this something we're going to just, you know, is this going to happen to us? We're going to have to close down. <laughs> that that was the, it was quite existential. Sorry, yes, I think, I think there was a bit of a difference when you, again, and this is one of the things, you know, very sad that these are the things that occupy my mind, but what's <laughs> actually behind the headlines in terms of government or opposition, what, what, it, what's, so the headline and a few speaking points, and then what's the detail of it? So the Labor Party, I think, talking about Labor Party's policies, they actually weren't planning on taking more money off private providers. What they were planning on doing was not putting more out. Mm. Kind of put, so. So it's currently, you know, depending on when you look at it and what you're looking at, it, it's roughly kind of seventy percent of funding goes to TAFE overall at the moment and about 30% to, to private providers, and it differs, differs in different states and whatever. But broadly, that's the... And, and similarly with the vet student loans funding and, and whatnot. Um, and so their, their commitment was um, that they wanted to keep it at either two... depended who you listened to. Uh, Two-thirds um, of uh, funding would go to TAFE or 70%, so, you know, almost the same thing. Um, 
and that there'd be these um, uh, free TAFE places, about 100,000, I think, from maybe 150 from, from memory, and then they would do that broader review. So there was quite a lot of concern, but when you actually, I mean, the, the, in actual fact, if that had happened, what it would have meant, would it, it would have been harder for private providers like yourself to grow your business further, not that you would have to close down, but that there and the pie probably would have grown. There would have been more vet, more funding for vet, um, if, you know, depending on other funding commitments. The, it, it, was, it looked like Labor would put more money back into the vet system. Mm. And of that pie, um, if there is more... Um, it would just be a limit on the the amount of growth that private providers could could have. Um, so not quite as bad as you might have thought. Um, and again, that's probably why I do spend the time to try and unpack those things because uh, hopefully that's then a bit less scary for people as they're looking at yeah. uh, what's coming. Um, you know, in terms of how different political decisions go. No, exactly. And then that's why I made the comment about the way you boil things down. It makes it much easier for people who are in the sector, running RTOs, uh, working in RTOs to go, oh, okay, that's what that means. That's how it's going to affect me. If not, we're, we're depending on government news releases or, or News Corp news releases and, and, and neither of which really make a lot of sense to a lot of people. So, uh, no, thank you for doing that. Going forward, though, this the, the probably the last question or thing I'd like to propose to you is – Whilst the future isn't as rosy as we'd like it to be, would you recommend a young person now to look at vocational education as career development rather than higher education? And if so, why? And if not, why not? Well, it depends who the young person is. Uh, And I think really that's the bit that we miss as parents and as a community um, and Peter Shergold, here's another, you know, thing I'm keeping an eye on. Peter Shergold is do, uh, former, um, you know, head of um, Prime Minister and Cabinet, is doing a review of the um, secondary school system. Is it too focused on preparing students for university? Probably yes, that's my view, not his, he hasn't, he hasn't written his uh, report yet. Um, so I think if I'm providing advice to somebody, it's about, well, what's your passion? What do you want to do with your life and where do you want to go? Um, and if what you're wanting to do is more uh, technically um, focused or applied and there's vet courses that take you to that occupation, that's absolutely what you should uh, look to do. Um if you're, you know, into something that's more academically focused or a particular occupation that you need a university degree for, then then that's the one to go to. So, to my mind, it comes down to what's in it for the individual. Um, Andrew Norton's done a, a bit of work on uh, this. He's no longer at the Grattan Institute, now at the ANU, but I think the, the research is still on the, the Grattan website. Looking at who, what choices do students take, and particularly those um, who may be better suited to um, a vet qualification and, and, and a, the resulting occupation who um, appear to have gone to university in recent years because the PECS loans have been more generous than, than the vet student loans. So um, that's worth a look if it is of, of um, interest. And essentially he finds, a bit like, you know, my theory, uh, which is that he's coming at it from a you know measured and data analytical um, approach, but really 
follow what your interests are, that's the best career path for you. Yeah, well, true words haven't been spoken, so well done. I, I must say, from again, from a personal point of view, I've got such a, an interest in the history of a university's history of higher education and its place in the world a thousand years ago, 500 years ago, and a hundred years ago even. And to me, it just seems so commercial now that they're trying to get people here. If you do this uni course, you'll get this kind of job. When really the the essence of university was to expand the mind, it was about knowledge, it was about um, researching, discovering new things. And, and I would love it to take that place as opposed to be a commercial necessity for foreign money, <laughs> which it tends to tends to be. And then let the vet sector do employability skills. Let the vet sector take care of people's job skills. And, and but, but I don't think I'm going to change the world with that little opinion. But that that's kind of where I where I see it. It would be so nice to just still have that that love of knowledge to be embraced at the university level, and then the love of skills and competency be be embraced by vocational sector. But um, maybe I'm just yeah, living in the past a little bit, but, but that's where I would love to see things go. Oh, I think the challenge for both sectors, I think there's something in what you say, um, although the doctors and others may not quite agree, but I do think there is something <laughs> yeah, in what you say. That. Yeah. Um, but, um, architects and others. But I think the other thing that, uh, you know, I'm not sure how much it's on your radar and understand there's a time limit on your podcast, but the thing that uh, both sectors also need to be thinking about is not just competition, uh, vet or higher ed, particularly we're starting to see it already in the uh, at the university level in the um, postgraduate space and in the vet upskilling and corporate training space, we're starting to see disruption and threat from non-accredited offerings. And I think that's or not accredited through a formal education system, but accredited through like industry certification. Yeah. Um, it's a bit more than the Microsoft courses of old. And I think that's a real threat for vet providers who are less focused on the first initial post-school qual and more in that corporate training uh, sector mm. uh, and depending on what it is that, you know, what the particular areas that they're teaching in. So that's one, I think, to, to keep an eye on for the future. I totally agree. Um, the the micro courses and, and that sort of thing, we actually covered in a podcast recently with a, an IT fellow who delivered a speech at the VELG conference and I absolutely agree that those courses serve a purpose. They serve a purpose for people who have interests, who want to upskill in certain areas quickly and for very low cost. And uh, the quality of the content in a lot of these online courses and, and um, non-accredited courses is incredibly high. Masterclass and uh, the great courses and things like this, they're taught by absolute icons in the industry. Yes. <laughs> so it's very hard to say, though, oh, the quality of the content is no good because it is. <laughs> it, it certainly it certainly is. So uh, just on that, there's a figure out uh, last, last week or this week, 40% um, decline in the last four years in domestic enrolments in postgrad uh, business courses in, our, in Australian universities. 40%. So all those in our, wow. Yes. Mm. Right now, overall, their postgrad numbers are flat um, domestically because there's higher enrolments in health and other courses. Uh, but the MBAs are being eaten alive, not for international students at the moment, but for domestic students. They're being eaten alive by highly credible, valued 
um, shorter, you're right, micro courses or shorter courses, six months rather than, you know, the full MBA, um, that deliver skills that uh, that both individuals and their employers value. So it is yeah. one to, to keep an eye on and great that you've already um, started to unpack that. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, it's been on my radar personally for, for years. That's why I think I started my podcast originally in 2008 before people realised what podcasts were. And I thought, well, <laughs> this is a great idea, but no one was listening because no one knew what they were yet. <laughs> Indeed, we didn't. All right, well, Claire, thank you so much for your time. Uh, for those in the audience who might want to get hold of you to to maybe make use of your services, etc., can you just maybe summarise the services you offer to people and how they might be able to get in contact with you? Sure. Uh, so my website is clairefield.com.au and that's Claire, C-L-A-I-R-E-F-I-E-L-D. And really, I'm a consultant in the vet higher ed international education space, looking at strategy and, you know, uh, strategic management kind of issues. Um, and I also do have a, a podcast, if you're interested, uh, which is What Now, What Next? And you can find it wherever you find your your podcast. So um, thank you. No, pleasure, Claire. And uh, Claire Field, thank you for joining us on the Vocational Education Podcast. Nice to chat with you. Thanks, Dan. <laughs> Thanks, Claire. to the Vocational Education Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe by going to Apple Podcasts and searching for VE Podcast and subscribing. Or you can go to SoundCloud or you can go via our website, which is www.spectraining.edu.au and just click on Podcasts. Talk to you soon. <laughs>